There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the game podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us in this fascinating international break. In the studio with us, I'm delighted to say, it's Bill Edgar, and down the line, where he's on his way to the Rock of Gibraltar, it's George Colkin. Later on, we'll be discussing Messi and Ronaldo, but most definitely not the age-old question of who is better, because there is no answer to that. It's kind of like the infinity loop. (laughs) Good one. But we start at Wembley as Euro 2020 qualifying gets underway for England this Friday as they face the Czech Republic. Let's remind you of England's group, Group A, which also contains Czech Republic, Bulgaria, Montenegro and Kosovo. Now, of course, the big addition to this squad is Declan Rice. He's finally made up his mind. He will play for England. So, George, I know you've covered the Republic of Ireland. Where do you see him fitting into Southgate's team? It's been a kind of fascinating story that sort of even three, three, four months after making his debut for Ireland in those in those three friendlies, he was being left left out of the Ireland squad because of England's interest and really the way he's played, he's played so well and he seems to offer variation. I think that's that's maybe the key thing for England that he's not just a holding midfielder; he's a holding midfielder who has the positional sense of the centre-half where he can also play, but is also keen to get forward. And he's he's kind of mobile, he's not static, and I think he offers a bit of variation, and I'm so, sure England have seen that. But I mean, I'm sure part of it is also sort of making sure that he's on, he's on their books because there was that clash for him. You talk about the clash. I'm looking at your story here. There's a direct quote from him, which is from March of last year, so... 12 months ago. And the quote is, there's no decision to be made. If I didn't want to be playing for Ireland, I wouldn't be here. Now, you also note that this was a few days from his, before his first appearance uh, for Martin O'Neill. So that might also be that that's what soured everything for him. But I, I know I, we've been through this and, and allegiance and what you feel and, and what you don't feel and so on. But those are pretty strong words from from a year ago. And I guess with hindsight, he regrets saying that, right? Well, I mean, I suppose so. I mean, I don't think he regrets playing for Ireland. I mean, I have to remember that he's he was 19 at the time. He's only 20 now. He's a young man being kind of asked, being asked to sort of make fairly fundamental decisions about who he is, what he is, and his future, and and so on and so forth. He was born in England. There was an Irish side on his on his dad's side. That's always been part of this kind of heritage and and sort of culture. And he was picked up to the 15 by the Irish scouts. But I mean, he he has said himself in a kind of an interview that was that the FA I think have, have kind of broadcast that you know he sounds English, he feels English. I think one of the things that sort of I found interesting, kind of writing that piece, was to talking to people like 
Mark Noble. I spoke to him after Newcastle's game at West Ham a few weeks ago. You know, he was he had the opposite choice. Had kind of represented England under 21s and so on and so forth. But had Irish grandparents was asked to play for Ireland, and he sort of you know he decided he decided against that. That he never sort of felt Irish, but he was being asked to do that in his mid to late twenties. Mick McCarthy himself, who as recently as three months ago was speaking in very firm terms about wanting Declan Rice to be his captain in the future and maybe play a hundred times and all that kind of stuff, had the same dilemma as a kid at Barnsley born with a, with an Irish dad who had the choice. He actually, before getting the job for the second time, he spoke about if he was Gareth Southgate, he'd be putting the pressure on saying, look, you've just seen us at the World Cup. That was amazing. Come and be part of this. And he sort of said that the feeling, the feeling in the country is similar to to what it must have been like in 1966 and 1990 and all that kind of stuff. So it's very difficult to sort of put yourself in that position. But I mean, I think I think you know the point is that this is not not a rare occurrence. George, if we just put it in focus, the decision he made, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the decision he made wasn't between playing for England and playing for for Ireland. The decision he made originally was playing for Ireland and not playing international football or biding his time until he got a call-up because playing for England wasn't an option at the time. That's right. No, yeah, that's right. It's not necessarily an unfair thing to say. Again, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but England don't think I'm good enough to play for them, so I'll play for Ireland. But if I had the option to play for England, I would play for England. I mean, if, if he had said something like that, would people have gotten all bent out of shape? Again, that's a good question. I mean, McCarthy said the same thing. You know, he had the choice, but he didn't think he would be good enough to play for either. And so when Ireland came knocking on the door, it was a no-brainer for him. Ireland came knocking on the door for Declan Rice when he was 15, and he'd been released by Chelsea. He'd been there since he was seven, and I think had, had, had then been picked up by West Ham. But, I mean, England, he wasn't in their system. I mean, it's not that England didn't subsequently know who he was and get in touch and all that kind of stuff because they did. But the, you know, the choice at 15 was to play was to was to play international football, and he said yes. I think it's a quite a, a reasonable rule, actually. If once you've played a competitive game, you can't switch to another country. If it meant that players were playing 30 or 40 times for one country and still able to move to another country, that would be very unsatisfactory. But it's never that would gonna, be rugby. It's never well, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be more than a two or three at the most and then they'll move and it won't really ever get realistically get more than that because you're not going to be playing friendlies over and over again and missing out all the competitive games so you won't you won't play more than a couple well with all the uh, nations league and and everything like that you're getting less and less friendlies anyway yeah one thing worth saying is is to is to look from the other angle briefly and it's a huge it's a huge huge blow for ireland because they have an absolute dearth of of big names and names playing in the Premier League and playing regularly. And, you know, McCarthy had talked about building the team. I would love to build the team around Declan Rice, he said. And within within the England squad, Rice will be a good player, but he will be just another player. And within the England squad, he would have been, as I say, potentially a future captain and someone that the manager would have looked to, to build around. So it's a big loss for them. And the angst is being felt about that without, without question. I wish George did the Mick McCarthy Barnsley accent when he, when he says Mick McCarthy says, but I'll do that. I can do it.
There's more bikes out in the Birkins <laughs> last time. <laughs> there you go. That's very good. Uh, Bill, I mean, do you see Declan Rice fitting easily into this England squad then? I think he's uh, proved himself as a, a fantastic anchor midfielder. And he just plays the role of just covering in front of the centre-backs. I mean, he can go forward a bit, but he really does that job intercepting passes, just closing people down. Then, then he, he'll win the ball or he'll intercept the ball and he'll... He'll keep it. He'll pass just a simple ball, usually usually forward rather than sideways. I mean, he's, he's reasonably positive, but I think he's fitted in amazingly. And after about five games this season for West Ham in midfield, you could see he was he had to be the first choice in that position for them already. He started playing centre back occasionally for West Ham, and he had a few problems, but he's he's fitted into that perfectly. And England, Henderson's probably a bit more of an attacking player. Dyer, well, he's. I mean, he's also a centre-back. He's, I, I don't know, I, I just... He's a different player to Henderson. So Henderson overall will give you more, certainly at the moment, but, but Rice is such a good 100% anchor midfielder that in England, otherwise, they just don't really have somebody who plays that role, I, I don't think. So I would definitely put him in. Well, of course, during the World Cup... Gareth Southgate had his rigid three-five-two system. He wouldn't change that, causing... Call it rigid three-five-two, would he? No, he wouldn't, no. <laughs> That's what I... No, okay. no. but others criticise him for supposedly having this rigid system. But when it came to the Nations League, he then switched, didn't he, to four-three-three. Do we have any guesses, Bill, if we'll um, see that this time? I would have, I'd have thought he, he would stick with four-four-two. Oh, sorry, four at the back, anyway. It's not like he's, he's switched from game to game between three centre-backs and two centre-backs. He kind of, in the build-up to the World Cup, he went to three, and then after the World Cup, gone back to four, and it's just been those two changes, really. If he was tempted to do it this time, the the shortage of centre-backs, his the best centre-backs, with Stones and Gomez both out, you'd be looking at Maguire and Tarkovsky and Keane, two very uh, inexperienced players at international level, unless you went back to the... World Cup system of putting Walker in as the right-sided of three centre-backs. So, so I'd imagine he'll stick with uh, four. So to be, it must be Maguire on the left-hand side, then either Tarkovsky or Keane to the right. Are you excited? I mean, I know Keane's had a much better year this year than than last season. Tarkovsky, I don't know. I, I don't. No disrespect. I know he's one of yours. Um, <laughs> but, you say he's one of ours. No, he but, played at Brentford. But. But what I mean is, when I see him play for Burnley, and a lot of times they're defending really deep, he's got so many players around him. That's hugely different yeah. from the way he'd be asked to defend at England. You have to take take that into consideration, the fact that he's playing for a, a really well-drilled defence at Burnley, as Keane was. So when he, he left that comfort zone to go to Everton and it struggled a bit, and Tarkovsky is within that, you know... Fantastic. Well, not quite so much this season, but you know they defend well as a group. They defend quite deep. So, as you say, he does have a, a very familiar system and lots of people around him. But that's not not to say he won't, he wouldn't thrive elsewhere. But you do have to bear that in mind. But yeah, it's a toss-up between Keane and Tarkovsky. But obviously, Matej Vidra has spoken about Harry Maguire being the weak link. Uh, for England. He's said in some moments it seems he doesn't know what's happening behind him. That's why he got a red card against Burnley. Does that mean Gareth Southgate might think twice about playing him? better than Keane and Tarkovsky, so for better or worse, 
Yeah, and you, you play him, right? I mean, you've got to be wary of uh, players uh, talking wisely after the event. I mean, maybe, maybe Burnley did talk exactly about that about Maguire, but uh, say, oh yes, we had a team talk. We said exactly what did happen is exactly what we said would happen, and therefore we're very clever. You know, you have to sort of take it with a bit of a pinch and salt. But uh, uh, no, Maguire's a fantastic player, and I know. People have said that uh, without Stones, then Stones is great at bringing the ball out. And now, what will England do? But I mean, you can just pass it on, pass it to the left, give it to Maguire. He's uh, just as good a, a dribbler. In fact, he, he records far more dribbles than uh, Stones does, and he's uh, also a decent passer. So, on, at least on the attack side of things, I don't think that's a, a problem for England. Do we think Callum Hudson Odoi or James Ward-Prowse might get a run out? You just like saying double barrel down. I do, I really do. Should have more of them. Well, I think we should talk a little bit about Kalman to the door. Because this is still very odd, and I don't think we fully wrapped our heads around this. An 18 year old player who has yet to make a Premier League start. The who, important thing is it's not just a, a Premier League start, but any league start, not abroad, because Sanchez has not played in the start in the Premier League. He's played abroad. Other players have, the yeah, World Cup played England before he'd played in the Premier League or anything, but at least he started for Southampton over and over again. Callum Hudson Odoi has literally never started a league game in his career. I mean, that's the incredible thing. He gets picked for England, which is unusual, but it's, what blows me away is that. Bayern Munich supposedly offered forty million for him. That's what. That's just really bizarre. That's what I can't wrap my head around. Uh, George, do you remember anybody being fussed over so much when they were so young, and sort of threatening to leave what is a big club for another big club? It's the top of my head. No, I can't think of. I can't think of anybody. No, and there is that sense that you know sometimes players like Rooney emerge. And it's obvious that they're going to get kind of called up by England and, you know, everyone's going to get kind of very excited and there'll be that kind of push behind them. But Rooney was playing for Everton at the time and there was something to kind of base, to, to base that on. I mean, I suppose that's the kind of, that's the sort of fascinating thing about Hudson uh, Odoi is that we're not seeing him play for his club and he's being called up for England and, yet, and, there's, all, and there's all this sort of chatter around him potentially sort of potentially moving I mean I, it sort of happened backwards a little bit it's not unusual that that young players get seen by other big clubs and stuff like that but, but but I think to have the two things at the same time and the sums of money that are being talked about is sort of extraordinary and I mean you know usually there is that sense that if you're going to get called up called up for your country it's on the basis of what you're doing for your for your club which is a bit sort of a bit unusual do you think it's also perhaps a way from Southgate's perspective to... Because I know they, they said they were on an issue with players going abroad or whatever, but I think from for England, it's probably better that he remains in England, you know, provided he gets playing time. I think it's still a bit, from the FA's perspective, a bit of a collective failure when people move abroad so young, and there's different reasons for it, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's justifiable. But also with a view towards the fact that Chelsea had another exceptional young player who got into a contract dispute, and Chelsea's solution to this was to sit him for 12 months. And it's Dominic Solanke who, you know, now we all look, oh, but Solanke's not as good as Hudson-Odoi. I'm like, yeah, sure. But at the time, you know, he was he was a hugely high player. And there's always that possibility. So Hudson-Odoi's contract expires in, in May of, uh, or June of 2020. And if he doesn't extend, there's the possibility that Chelsea don't sell him and keep him there and sort of punish him by not playing. 
which is what happened with Solanke. Did you, can you see that happening? As you say, you get nothing for him, or he could just, you know, tail off a bit. I mean, there's so little evidence to go on, so that forty million suddenly seems like an absolute fortune, and in a couple of years' time, is only worth ten or fifteen or something, and you've thrown away all that money. So they could, or he extends his contract. Yeah, or he extends his contract. That'd be okay. I think it's a factor in uh, Hudson Odoi's call-up that he. They did so well for uh, England under 17s when they won the World Cup, and there's this great desire in the England set up to have a pathway between the youth teams and the senior team. It's the sort of thing that you wouldn't imagine possible 10 years ago, but now I really think that they took that into consideration. They, they, they think, yes, he's shown he can handle it on the big occasion, albeit with a youth team, so um, let's put him in. And they, they, you know, they're just trying to encourage the the links between the the youth and the senior team. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. George, whilst we have you here, it would be remiss to not discuss Rafa Benitez and the state of Newcastle United. There is this ongoing grappling with Rafa's contract, which doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And, and am I correct in thinking, George, that you too have been grappling with Benitez? <laughs> uh, yes. So Newcastle, were they did a little bit of warm weather training a few weeks ago and they went to Spain, much as they did last year. And... A few journalists went over with them to sort of watch a bit of training and have a chat with a, a player or two. Did a piece with Isaac Hayden, which I enjoyed doing. And there was a sort of sit down with Rafa in which the idea was to sort of try and talk to him about stuff away from the field a bit. And in the course of that, he talked about how he had a brown belt in judo when he was a kid. And before I knew it, his hands were around my throat and he was practicing his judo moves so I kind of wrote a very self-indulgent piece about that for the paper but that was good fun and yeah I mean seriously on a serious note he he is the glue that holds that club together and before we get into all that I want to make sure I understood this correctly you said he has a brown belt in judo a brown belt in judo yeah because when we're upstairs in our office we got our, our online editor David Jordan to look up I, I'm unfamiliar with a little different levels of judo. Brown belt is like the third level up from the bottom. So it's kind of like if you do judo for a year, you get a brown belt. In other words, you don't. The implication is it's not like he's a judo badass. He just kind of did judo for a year. Now, I'm not saying this to mock him, but rather when you were grappling with him, did you feel like he could have dumped you on your head if he'd wanted to because he was such a master of the martial arts? Or did you feel like you could have held your own? I mean. Pretty much anybody could do that to me, really. Um, <laughs> he, one of his arms was strapped up because he's got RFI. That was the other, that was the other thing that we uh, talked about. And it kind of comes on when he shakes people's hands, which he does a lot, sort of at events and things like that. And it comes on when he, because he works on his laptop all the time, scouting players and teams. Cut. This time it had come on because he was determined to beat his wife in a game of solitaire, I think it was, on his, on his phone. And he spent, he spent weeks making sure that he could beat her record. And he did, of course he did. And he had RSI. So maybe I could have taken him on that day. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But he, got, he got RSI from playing hours on his phone in solitaire. solitaire. Yeah. He, he, he's like, he's like those kids who stay up all night and play Fortnite, but because he's from a different era, he plays solitaire on it's his that, phone. Well, he already mastered Snake, 
So we moved on to solitaire. Is that it? I don't know. I don't know what the game was, but that's that's what that's that's how he did it. Yeah, that's how he did it. And it was, and he was, you know, talking about other things like sort of what, <laughs> watching watching westerns and things like that. But if you if you then if you speak to his coaching staff, his backroom staff, they'll say never ever watch a film with Rafa because he stops it every two minutes and he's pointing out all the continuity mistakes <laughs> on the judo. Apparently, he took the... I mean, he might have just misremembered what colour he had. He said that he took the, what would you call it, test for a black belt, but because he hadn't practised for a while, and he, he said it's all in kind of the wrist strength, and because he was concentrating on football, blah, 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 he didn't have the wrist strength, and so he was beaten. Yeah, back then, he probably didn't have the wrist strength because he was staying up all night playing video games back then, probably. too. Probably. So, but, I don't know, I think one of his Batman or something back I, then. I think his brother. I'm not sure how many brothers he's got, but I think he said that one of his brothers got got a did get a black belt. <laughs> you just find this guy. So the other thing that's did you tell him that if you pay solitaire and you and you have RSI, given that you know it's not one of those sort of fast paced reaction games, he could probably teach himself to go and move the cards with his left hand, and if he <laughs> alternates between his two hands, it might be one of those solitaire games. You know, that, whether there's a time limit or you know, I think it's probably one of those. So he has to do it with his right hand. This I don't is serious stuff. <laughs> Clearly, I don't know, but but the thing is, he has it anyway, and so it brought it on. Shall I talk about contract now? Yeah. So what you know, I was going to say. So, so what's no, happening no, come with on, him? Tell us well, more Uncle Rafa stories. <laughs> come on. So George. so. You know, it is a dysfunctional club. We know that, and it has been dysfunctional still over the last three years. And there have been, you know, many breakdowns in communication, particularly over signing players and budgets and uh, and things like that. And obviously, Rafa kind of wants a level of control which they're not prepared to give. And this has been the kind of constant backdrop that's been going on over the past over the past three seasons. The club say they want him to stay, and they're they're certainly putting a level of pressure on him and those kind of talks are ongoing it's been written that he's been kind of given and been given a written offer but i don't think that's right i think there have been written communications between the camp but i don't think there's been anything as straightforward as a written offer i don't think there's any sense yet about how long a contract might last or what the financial terms would be or you know indeed what the caveats would be because i think a big thing for him is that He's not put in the same position that he's been in the past where he's been given a budget or has been told there will be a budget, has not been spent. Um, you know, I think he would want guarantees. The conversations are ongoing. And personally, I would expect that to sort of be extended further. They're not safe yet. I think he'll, I think he will, he would want them to be in a position where they're safe and then he can kind of give it his attention. But I mean, you know, he, he loves Newcastle, he loves the club, he loves he loves the fans and the staff and players and stuff like that. But he is a free agent in the summer and so he's within his rights to sort of think about what might what might happen next. It ticks a lot of his boxes as a club, but he is used to working at the Champions League and at, at a higher level and competing for trophies and that's not gonna happen in the near future at Newcastle. So he needs a project. I don't like using that word, but that's that's what he needs and to feel that there's a chance of progressing because whatever else is ha- I mean the team might be slightly better this by the end of the season but they won't have progressed in terms of league position and they won't have progressed in terms of cups or anything like that if you were to put on your your Mike Ashley hat for a minute I, I know it's uncomfortable but just bear with me from from his perspective I'm just trying to think like an Ashley right now I'm assuming at the right price he would still happily sell the club and there might be buyer a might think the club is more valuable with Rafa Benitez on board 
But then there might be a different kind of buyer who might think the club is less valuable if Rafa Benitez is there and tied into a long-term contract. Is that correct? And is that maybe part of the reason why Ashley's dithering a little? I think that is part of it. And that's certainly always been the case. The kind of consortiums who were sort of allegedly interested this last time, I don't think there was sort of any particular sort of contact with Benitez and stuff like that. But the, but the year... Uh, this is this is the Amanda Staveley group and the No, no, Peter but, but, group, but the Peter Kenyon group. But certainly with the Staveley group, Rafa's, Rafa staying was a big part of their of their bids and if you look at it from Ashley's perspective what does what does Rafa mean if you look at it from supporters perspective Rafa means Newcastle being a big club because they have a big manager and so he allows them to dream a bit if you think about it from Ashley's perspective what is Rafa well he's probably a guarantee that the as near as you can get to a guarantee that the club won't get relegated and I think that's a big thing and they have a Champions League manager, don't they? And so that is a big set. Now, in terms of selling the club, you hear all sorts of different things. But what tends to happen is, and it happened again at the end of last season, was that because Newcastle were then safe, the price goes up again. And we've just had a winter where prospective buyers have got nowhere near sort of an asking price of around 300 million. My kind of concern is that they're safe again and the price goes up again. I mean, I would say that Newcastle with Rafa on board is worth more than Rafa without him. So I'm sure that is all part of it. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our very own Bill Edgar provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And here is one for you on this podcast. After England have played twice over the next few days, Gareth Southgate will become the first to have both played in and managed in at least 33 England games. He'll be on 33 games as a manager and 57 games as a player. Whose title then will he take as the most durable all-rounder? In other words, who at the moment is the only person to have both played at least 32 times for England and also managed them for at least 32 games? We can figure this out, right? Do you think? Oh, come on. Just work backwards. Okay. Big Sam? No. Roy Hodgson? No. No. Fabio Capello? No. No. Steve McLaren? No. Sven Joran Eriksson? No. Glenn Hoddle? That's not a bad shout, Glenn. Possibility, yeah. Bobby Robson? Mm, not mm. sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd lean hodl. Um, yeah, I'm and I see hodl. Bill's getting nervous. It's those <laughs> little balls of sweat. <laughs> and if you go further back, Al Ramsey. Al Ramsey, that's not. Mm, I don't know about his. Did he have much of an English career? career? Yeah, slightly before my time. Yeah, just a little bit. Ron Greenwood. Ken, don't know about the playing. Do we know 
Do they have England managers before Alf Ramsey? No, no. We, did, we discount Which them Which is all. football starts with Alf Ramsey. Yeah. Actually, Bill, can I throw you a trivia teaser? Name three, three people who managed England before Alf Ramsey. And don't with you can't name Walter Winterbottom. Well, apart from Walter Winterbottom. Walter Winterbottom. Before, well, apart from him. But before that, it was a selection committee, so there wasn't actually a manager before. So that makes it very easy, doesn't it? Oh. Yeah, so it can really only be Glenn Hoddle or hope. Bobby Robson. Mm. Or Alf Ramsey, if Alf Ramsey had much of an England career, which I genuinely do not know no. about. All right. All, All right. right. Well, you don't have long. You can wait until the end of the podcast to find out the answer. Macab, you're wanting to have the Messi versus Ronaldo debate. A slightly different variation on it. Okay, yes. Both Messi and Ronaldo will be in action this Friday evening. Portugal play Ukraine in Lisbon, whilst Argentina face Venezuela in a friendly. The last time we saw both these players was at the World Cup. With the same day at the World Cup, Natalie, June yeah. 30th, within a few hours of each other. They were both eliminated, yeah. one by future world champion France, the other one by the those masters of the dark arts, the Uruguayans. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. The two continue, though, to dominate at club level, having not maybe been able to lift their respective national teams to glory in Russia. So how likely is it we'll see them play to their club form on Friday evening, Gab? I, mean, I think pretty good, since they're coming off pretty tremendous weekends, right? Uh, we, we talked about this on Monday. Uh, Messi had that incredible hat-trick against Betis where he was given a standing ovation by the opposition fans. And, you know, Ronaldo, the last time we saw him, he was scoring a hat-trick against Atletico Madrid. But what I find really interesting, and, and Bill, I haven't done as much research into this as, as you might have, but when we mention the greatest players of all time, it's always the same names. It's Messi. In addition to these two, it's, it's Pelé, it's Maradona, it's Cruyff. George Bass, whatever, you know, Di Stefano, depending on your viewpoint. But these guys are are incredibly productive well into their 30s. I, I actually looked this up. The year Pelé turned 31, he'd won the World Cup the year before, but he scored 10 goals. The year Maradona turned 31, he was being banned for cocaine. You know, Ronaldo's nearly 35, and Pelé was playing for the New York Cosmos at the time, and Maradona was banned from football again. That, to me, is what's pretty incredible. Yeah. What do you put their productivity well into their 30s? Yeah, it is amazing. that. Yeah, just thinking of the, the most talented English players of the last 30 years, think of Rooney, well, he tailed off at 30. Gascoigne sort of obviously tailed off. Lineker was a, probably a six- or seven-year window when he was great. They were all absolutely incredible players, but they didn't have this... And they weren't the level of Messi and Ronaldo, of course, but just looking at English examples. But, but yeah, Messi and Ronaldo, they've gone on. Messi, I think, is he turning 32 around now? And Ronaldo's 33, I think. And they, Ronaldo's 34. Messi's 34. 30. The, the two of them, they've, they're naturally fit, as it were, in that they haven't suffered from injury much over the years. So that's a bit of luck, since I guess, or maybe... Since he turned 20, the longest layoff for Messi and Ronaldo was six weeks. Really? That's the longest that they've been out, and I think it only wow. happened once. Yeah, well, that, that's incredible. I mean, it, obviously, perhaps they've you can put it down to maybe looking after their bodies well to a certain extent, I don't know. But, I mean, Ronaldo, you, you just look at him, and he, he's such a, a driven player, and you, you see the way he's he's improved over the years so that while he started out a, a great 
winger, good, could beat people, really good right foot. But he's, he's obviously thought, right, I want to be the best in the world, and I can, I'll just improve my left foot, and I'll just go and practice hundreds of shots every day. And I want to be the best at heading, so I'll just go and practice hundreds of headers every day. And he's become the possibly the best header in the world, you know, attacking the ball. Anyway, he's just decided I want to go on as long as possible, and he's done whatever is necessary. He has slowed up a bit, I think, Ronaldo, but he's playing more of a centre forward than on than on the left wing these days, and he's turned into well, an, a well, sensation. I mean, since you know, unlike Natalie and I, you're old enough to remember time before Messi and Ronaldo. Is is it a fact that you know football today that attackers receive more protection mm. and they're not subjected to? Some of the nasty tackles that people before that definitely, and the, it's easier to be an attacker, and that the the pitches are much better, so you know you can just assume the ball's going to arrive at you in a certain way, so you you can control it. You, you can, the, your first touch can be knocking it past a de- defender, whereas in the any top division pitch in the seventies and eighties, it's just an act of faith if you, the ball's going to bounce consistently. So you had to. Well, I want to ask that actually because people not many people know this. Uh, maybe you don't even know this about Natalie, but Bill is also a master groundskeeper. And this is what I don't understand about why the pitches were so much worse in the 70s and 80s in the sense that, okay, it was a long time ago, but it's grass and it's rain and you water it and it's dirt and it grows. Why were the why were they so much worse? And then why, for example, I mean, I'm curious, I, I don't golf, I know you're also a scratch golfer, but... Were the putting greens worse worse in the seventies and eighties? I guess what I'm driving at is: do people not care about the pitches as much, or has there been some big leap forward mm. in technology? I, you'd have to ask somebody else. My guess would be they just didn't care as much. Well, you're and they the didn't. Master yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, my guess would be they didn't care as much. Obviously, now if you think it would give your team a slight advantage, well paying half a million on a to make sure the pitch is fine is obviously worth it it's, it, it's nothing you know whereas in the old days oh, did it really you know did they really care you know i remember manchester united around uh, i think it was 1992 when they they felt that they were being hindered from uh, winning the title year after year because old trafford pitch was so bad it was worse than the average they did fix it at that point and suddenly the pitch was better in 92 93 and uh by coincidence or not, that's when they started winning. So that definitely has helped uh, modern-day attackers, I think. But um, taking everything into consideration, I would, as far as all the football I've seen, I, I would say that Messi and Ronaldo are the, the best two of, of all time. And even if they'd only gone on for six or seven or eight years or something, but the fact that they've, they've gone on even longer now is just makes it all the more... I mean, they are phenomenons. And when you consider, wasn't it last year that there was that report that came out that said Cristiano Ronaldo had the body in, of a 20-year-old or something, or mid, early 20s? Do you remember seeing this article? Yeah, no, familiar. but it sounds like the kind of thing that he would absolutely love. <laughs> oh, yeah, he happened. loved it. Don't get me wrong. He loved it. But it just goes to show that, you know, you were talking about his drive, and I'm sure mm. it's the same with Lionel Messi. They do have to work at it, yeah. but that's because they have that drive and ambition to succeed. I, I think the... I mean, this is going to be incredibly dumbed down, but as you already know from our conversations with Matthew Syed, in the nature of a nurtured debate, I'm way on the nature end. I mean, I think these guys are just physical genetic freaks. No question they absolutely work on it, but I think what the work probably does is it allows them to perform at this level more consistently for longer. So in other words, it could have gotten to this level if they had worked as hard as normal people, but the fact that they're freaks... Mm-hmm in terms of work ethic as well, is what allows them 
to to continue at this. And I don't know. I'm always kind of stuck by like, do we not appreciate them enough? And I'm talking on the pitch, obviously. And that we'll really only kind of get a sense after they're gone. Maybe the fact that there are two of them, you think, oh, is Messi that, the greatest that, yeah. of all time? Or we, is he even, lots of people say, was well, he even the greatest now in Ronaldo? You know? and, then, <laughs> and then the same like with Ronaldo. If it's just one of them, you say, well, this is incredible. How much must they annoy? Because for whatever reason, maybe it's just image, but you know, we all generally assume that Messi doesn't really care. He doesn't go home, polish up his trophies, <laughs> and look himself in the mirror. Ronaldo, obviously, by his own admission, he's a little more more vain. How much must it annoy him that, like, you know, three years after he makes his debut, this guy comes along and he's in the same conversation. Yeah. You know, he goes home and says, what, you know, Pele never had to deal with this. Maradona never had to deal with this. You know, what is this? It is time now for our weekly predictions game where we try and predict the score in five featured matches. Just to confirm, I am currently holding an unnervingly comfortable 15-10 lead this season, but it is international week. Anything can happen. Oh, my goodness. I'm a bit worried about this week. And so you should. (laughs) Shall we start with the big game at Wembley on Friday night? England against Czech Republic. Do you want to go first, Gab? Why, certainly. I'm wondering if I should give credence to Matej Vidra's words, but uh, I'm not going to. I'm going to say England 2 Czech Republic nil. Mm. Well, I again believe that England will win and will keep a clean sheet. I'm going for a 3 nil win. Ooh. Mm. Italy against Finland. Oh, I see. know you swatted up on the Finns. <laughs> Is your man Puki playing? I wonder. Oh, I don't know. Who would it be? Yeah, be and nice. you assumed I had no idea who Puki was? Yeah, I know. Like, what are you talking it's about? Setting to me. Timu Puki. Even if Timu Puki is in the side, I can't see Finland getting anything out of this one against your boys. I'm going for a 2-0 Italy win. That would be extraordinary because I think Italy are on this run where, like, they haven't scored more than no, one goal in, I like, just, seven years. I feel it. Despite now having, like, 70% possession. Yeah, and no, I'm going to keep it safe. I'm going to say one. <laughs> okay, Gibraltar against Republic of Ireland, where George is heading to, of course. Yeah. This is a, mm. Much as I love my Lincoln Red Imps, uh, I'm going to say uh, Republic of Ireland to win 4-0. Four, you're going big. They're playing Gibraltar. I know, but I still Danny think... Higginbotham retired, remember? <laughs> oh, no, that changes everything. I just, th- I don't know. I don't know if the Republic of Ireland are capable of scoring four. Martin which... O'Neill's no longer there. This is true. It is Mick. Um, I'm going to be a bit more conservative. I'm going to go for a 2-0 win. All right. Yeah. I can't believe you're dissing Mick, but... <laughs> Holland against Germany says here probably the most interesting match this weekend on a Sunday night. Yeah. Who you got? A bit of Oranje boom for you? <laughs> well, obviously Germany drew in a friendly on Wednesday night with Serbia. Leroy Sane back in the fold, having missed out playing in Russia. I think this it, it could be intriguing, but I'm actually going to go for a slightly cagey affair. I'm going to go for one-one draw. I think it's a very good shout. Mm. Um, I'm so tempted. I, I love to see them lose again. But come on, realistically, <laughs> there's only so many times after humiliated at the World Cup, relegated in the Nations League. Nah, it ain't, ain't going to happen. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say nil-nil. Oh. A nil-nil victory for Hope Holland. 
Finally, Wales against yes. Slovakia. Ooh, yeah. Now, this is in Cardiff, isn't it? Wales had a very late winner against Trinidad and Tobago in Wrexham on Wednesday night. They only won it 1 0. Hmm. Then again, they were playing two, two countries at once. <laughs> bit of cheating going on. There should be a steward's yeah. inquiry. But as it is, I think that result will stand. So I am going to go for 2 1 win for Wales. Against the mighty Slovaks? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to rooting for the home nations. I feel another nil-nil coming on. (laughs) Okay, we'll see what happens over the weekend. Now, it is just time for us to give you the answer to Bill's trivia teaser. We asked who is the only person to have both played at least 32 times for England and also managed them for at least 32 games. Bill, we try to come up with... An answer. We narrowed it down we to did. the three men, which I think we is pretty did. good. Yeah. Yeah. Hoddle, Sir Brian Bob. Robson, and Alf Ramsey. So Bo- Bobby. Bobby Robson, sorry. Yeah. And I'm pretty confident that it's one of those yeah, three. Yeah, I think they're, they're good. If it's one of those three, we win, right? And Bill loses again. <laughs> I know, because good deduction. Exactly. We whittled it down. Are we close, Bill? You are. It was one of those three. <gasps> Ooh. And it was Alf Ramsey. He played uh, 32 times for England, and he was manager for 113. How many times thought, did Hoddle play for England? He played 53, but he's manager for only 28. Ooh. So he was obviously cut short for uh, non-footballing Cursed reasons. Cursed at Eileen Drury. <laughs> exactly. And uh, there was also Bobby Robson... Bobby Robson played 20 times and was manager for 95. The one I, I thought you might be tempted by was Kevin Keegan, but oh. uh, he was only a manager for 18 games, played 63 times. Oh. Um, got him. We forget him. We knew he'd only... Yeah, yeah, we yeah, deliberately yeah, didn't did. mention yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep, yeah, that's did it. Walter I'll... Winterbottom ever play for England? No. Walter Winterbottom played 26 times for Manchester United just before the war. She's a bit so, like playing for England, so so yeah. That was <laughs> his entire career. <laughs> he played twenty six times yeah. in his entire career. Although that he was just before the war, so uh, well, I guess war. the war got got in the way. There was no oh. no proper football. Did he serve in, in the war? Mm, don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So you're listening to the Walter Winterbottom. I know. Who knew this is how this Madeline's is going to end up going? That's more than enough for now. Many thanks to our excellent guests, George Colkin, speaking to us from the road in Gibraltar, and of course the magnificent Bill Edgar. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online. Not just that, but The Sunday Times, too, on your smartphone or tablet. It's just £1 a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. We'll be back next week. See you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.